Let's grab our Bibles and turn to Hebrews, Hebrews uh, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one sitting next to you or in front of you somewhere. Um, and uh, if you don't have one at all, we'd love to give you one. We have those back in our Connection Central room or out at, uh, out at our, our VIP tent. And uh, we'd love to, love to uh, give you that. Let me say something before I get started um, that has nothing to do with today's sermon. Well, it has something to do, but, it, but, it's, but it's about last week's sermon. I don't know how many of you are here, but, but let me, I want to just say to you, I think I, well, I know, I missed something. And I want to be sure I preach to you the whole counsel of God. And I came home, and as I often do, I'm, I was exhausted on Saturday afternoon, and I was thinking about what I had preached, and I was sort of going over in my head, and it dawned on me, and I even said to Michelle, I think the next day, I said, I, I missed something. I mean, I left out something pretty glaring that I got to be sure I rectify. And then the next day, I think, or day or two later, I got an email, a gracious, godly email from somebody in our church that was sort of pointing out the same thing that I was feeling. They weren't being angry. It wasn't anything like that. They were just saying this. And, and here, here's, what I, here's what I think I did. I love the Word of God. I absolutely love the Word of God. I believe God speaks to us through the Word of God, as I said last week. But I think in my zeal to tell you about the Word of God and to tell you about how wonderful it is and how God speaks through it, I think I, I know I, I left out the Holy Spirit. And, and I want to be sure you hear this from me because one of the things the Bible teaches is, yes, God speaks through the Word, absolutely. We, we hear the voice of God in the Word. But I want you to understand God speaks through the Holy Spirit. There are gifts of the Spirit that God has given to His church. I believe in every single one of those, by the way. And God speaks. Now, it'll never, it'll never contradict the Word. It's never new revelation. I hope you understand that. It's, it's, it, it's not, you know, it's not we're, not, we're not talking about barking like dogs and falling on the ground. Not, I'm not talking about that. So I'm talking about how God leads and guides and directs and empowers and all these things through the Holy Spirit. And I fear that what I did last week was leave you that if you really thought about it, you might have gone out here and said the Trinity of the church was Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures, not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I, and I don't ever want to be a church like that. I love the Word of God because it comes from the God of the Word. And, and I want us to be careful. I need to be careful. And so I just tell you that because I, I feel like I needed to give you that corrective. That, that, and, and that's on me. That's on me. That's not on you. That's, that's something where I, I, I felt a conviction, and that conviction was then confirmed to me by someone else. And, uh, and, and I just want, I want you to hear me say out loud, listen, we can't live our lives without the Holy Spirit. We don't just do this on our own. We don't just do it because we get smarter through the Word of God. The natural man does not perceive the things of the Spirit because they are spiritually discerned. The Spirit of God has to enable us and empower us to live the Christian life. I could go on and on and on and on about the power and the need for the Holy Spirit and what He does and the way He operates. And so I feel like I left that off when I talked about how God speaks. I do believe what God primarily speaks through His Word, but I believe God speaks through the Spirit today to you. I believe that's the way God guides me. I pray every day before I step in this pulpit, God, fill me with your Spirit. I want to be a mouthpiece for you. I want to speak in a way that will benefit this group at this time. That's the Spirit of God can only do that. And so, so I, I just I say that to you because, again, I, 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 don't, I don't ever want to lead you feeling like, you know, yeah, let's just, let's just all get smarter and just get more information in our heads. Yeah, I want you to know the Bible. We ought to love it. We ought to cherish the Word of God. At the same time, we cherish the Spirit that, that, that breathed into men who wrote the Word of God. 
and we, and we worship Him just like we do the Father and the Son, okay? All right. So Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 2 and 3 today. And um, on May 21st, 1882, Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, greatest, one of the greatest preachers um, probably that ever lived, uh, stepped into his pulpit at London's Metropolitan Tabernacle to preach this passage, these two verses. So it's a little bit intimidating. I'm going to try to do what Charles Spurgeon did, but he, uh, he just simply said this as he got started. I have nothing to do tonight, he said, but to preach Jesus Christ. We have nothing more to do today than to preach Jesus Christ. The greatest need in the world today is Jesus Christ. And when we just preach Jesus Christ, we step back into a long line of church history that goes all the way back to the early church in the book of Acts who said, we have nothing more, nothing less, nothing better than to preach Jesus Christ. And that's it. So we find out in Acts chapter 5 and verse 42, the church did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. You skip forward to to Acts chapter 8 and verse 12, and here's, here's Philip, and we find out that his habit was he preached good news about the kingdom of God and about the name of Jesus Christ. The Spirit picks him up, transports him to to see an Ethiopian eunuch who is reading the book of Isaiah. He's opening a scroll. He doesn't know what he's reading. And so it says that Philip walked over to him, started talking to him, and this is what he says he did. He told him the good news about Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 11, we're told that the early church, as they they were persecuted and martyred, uh, Stephen was martyred, they scattered in what was called the diaspora, and they scattered into different places, and as they would go into new cities, their habit was preaching the Lord Jesus, Acts chapter 11 says. Paul, in in, uh, Acts chapter 9, is converted to Christ. And, and he, he comes to know Jesus. And what do we find out? Immediately after his conversion, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue. He tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2 that I resolved to know nothing among you but Jesus and him crucified. And then he ends the book of Acts. Luke ends the book of Acts. The very last verse of the book of Acts says, here's Paul in prison. He's receiving people to himself. And it says he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The early church turned the world upside down just by talking about Jesus. Just by telling the world, this is who Jesus is. The world's greatest need, what we offer to the world, we don't go out and preach morality. We don't go out and preach religion. We don't go out and give a motivational sermon. We go out and we tell people about Jesus. That is the greatest need in the world today. And apparently, the writer of Hebrews thinks the most practical thing that he can do for this beleaguered, um, uh, suffering, persecuted church is to tell them who Jesus is. Somebody once said to me that if you preach a sermon, if you preach a sermon that a Jew, a Jewish rabbi a Muslim imam, a Mormon elder could preach. Chris, if they, if they could preach the same sermon you preach, if, if 
Jewish people could get together, Mormon people could get together, Islamic people could get together and sing the songs that you sing with gusto, and you have not preached and you have not sung distinctively Christian songs, because what makes us distinctively Christian is, go figure, Christ. And so we have nothing better to offer. We have nothing better to talk about than Jesus. And so all the writer of Hebrews is going to do today is tell us, here's who he is, and here's what he's done. Here's who he is, and here's what he's done. In these two short verses, he is going to expound, and then he's going to take the rest of the book of Hebrews and tell us even more about this man named Jesus. Who was he? And what has he done? So let's start walking through it. First thing he says we want to find out is, who is he? And so let's pick up in verse 2. Uh, we'll, we'll just, and we'll, we'll, we'll go from there. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, so the first thing we find out, who is Jesus? Jesus is the son of God. He's the son of God. Now, we looked at this last week, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it other than to say that that means what the writer wants to do in all kinds of ways. This isn't just the first time. He's going to do it over and over and over through this, is he wants you to see, wants me to see, wants the people who are suffering to see that Jesus, this man who walked the earth, was God. He is God right now. Okay, like fully God. That's what it means in the Bible to be the son of God. But it also means he's got access in a way that you and I would not have access unless we were also children of God. Like my kids can come to places, can ask me for things that you can't ask me for because they're my kids. And, and, and he's a son of God and he has access to him. Jesus, but he said this, he said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So here he is as a son saying, look, what it means to be the Son of God is what you're seeing is you're seeing God in the flesh. You're seeing the incarnate God come to earth. That's what it means to be the Son of God. Jesus, God walked the earth in Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. But the second thing he tells us is that Jesus is the heir of all things. Look what he says, through uh, uh, whom he appointed the heir of all all things. Now, 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 just think about this for a moment. Jesus is the heir of everything. We, at, at Christmas or sometime, maybe you'll, you'll sing that song, the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah, and there's that place in the Hallelujah Chorus where we say, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, right? That's the idea. So when it says he's the heir of all things, literally in the Greek, it just says he is the heir of all, everything, Everything in the heavens and the earth belong to Jesus. He is the heir of all of it. This is amazing. So the universe, the riches, the natural resources, the earth, every gold mine, every diamond mine, every, I mean, every, everything that you can think of, he, is, he, is the, he inherits all of those things. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16 says all things were created for him. Romans chapter 11 and verse 36 says to him are all things. He gets it all. Jesus is the heir to 100% of everything in the world. Now, but why should you care? Why does that matter? Well, let me, let me give you a few things to think about. Well, you, you should care at the very least because that means that any promise in Scripture that Christ has made 
he can keep. If he says, I go to a place to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also, and if I go, I'll come back and get you. Do you think he can do that? If he says, the meek shall inherit the earth, think he can do that? If he says, nothing in heaven and earth will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, do you think he means it? I can actually deliver on that promise, nothing? See what I mean? See, 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 Jesus can deliver on every single promise he's made to you. But look at everything. Everything isn't just stuff. Because what that means, that the Bible says that part of God's, part of Christ's inheritance is his people. So if you are a child of God, the Bible calls you a treasured possession. Paul at one point prays in Ephesians 1 for, for Christians, and he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you will know what is his glorious inheritance in the saints. I want you to know that God looks and says, this glorious inheritance of mine is my people. How does he guard his inheritance? He looks and says, they're precious to me. I love my inheritance. I love that person. I love Chris Lewis. I love Tucker Lewis. I love Philip Bennington. I, I love Tom Houghton. I, I love, these are my people. I love them. They're my treasured, precious possession. You are loved by God. That's what it means to be the heir of all things. You're part of Christ's precious possession. Now listen, there's more though. Right? Because if you're, if you're a child of God, then Romans 8, 17, look at what it says. It says, then you're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. Not just we, we can read things so glibly and not let this soak in and go, like, are you kidding me? Because what I just said is he gets it all. And what this just said is if whatever he gets, you get. He gets everything. You get that with him if you're a child of God. Now, maybe you think, well, but I'm not sure that's all that great because, I mean, think about it. Like, Bill Gates is worth something like, I think I just saw, 76 billion dollars, right? And, um, and, there's, and let's suppose Bill Gates said in his will, I want to give everybody in the world their fair share of my inheritance, of, my, of what I leave, right? Well, so that means seven billion plus people get to inherit 76 billion dollars. So, you know, yay, I'll be looking forward to my check in the mail for 10 dollars, right? You'd think not a big deal. But that's not Jesus. He owns it all. He owns everything. He, he owns unlim he, he, unlimited resources. You understand that God creates with his words. <laughs> so if I don't have it, I just make more of it. I say, let it be, and it, and, it, and it will be. And there's never an end. So when it says that I am an heir, you are an heir with Christ, he's saying, man, look at what you stand to inherit. Now, now, now tell me, if you really thought about that, that would change how you lived, how you thought, your attitude. That would change your perception of today. Like if I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that in 20 years there was a billion dollar inheritance waiting for me, I could be living in squalor 
I could be going through horrible things. I could be going through financial difficulty after financial difficulty, but I can promise you every day I would be bringing to mind the fact that someday, 20 years, okay, 20 years minus one day, 20 years minus two days, it's coming and I'm going to inherit a billion dollars and all this suffering financially will go away. And God says, it's bigger than your financial suffering. It's everything. You stand to inherit everything. Do you see the hope? Like, like you're not going to sit here and think, man, I'm missing out. Uh, I, better, I better go have sex with my girlfriend, my boyfriend, because I'm missing out. I, 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 better, I better go, you know, charge up my credit cards because I'm missing out. I better go do the, all the, and the Bible's saying, you, you miss nothing. You miss, there's not one morsel of food that you're missing out on. There's not one experience that you're missing out on. He might be saying, hey, wait, it's going to be so much more glorious. See how this helps you live today? You're his inheritance, but you also inherit what he inherits. The next thing he says is that Jesus is the creator. Look look what he says. Through whom also he created the world. End of verse 2. Jesus is the creator of the world. Now, um, we hear stories about super rich children of the super rich, right? And it's kind of like, you know, little rich brats. They did nothing. You know, they get all these billions of dollars. They had this great last name. And so they get it all. And they didn't, they didn't work for it. They didn't do anything for it. And you can't say that about Jesus. Jesus gets it all because Jesus made it all. Right? He created all things. Everything that was created was created by him. In fact, look at chapter, uh, John chapter 1 and verse 3. It says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, for by him all things were created. Now, now just, just look at this, <laughs> right? We can read scripture so mindlessly. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Now, just stop. Jesus created invisible things. Now, I just think that's kind of cool. Like there are things I can't see and Jesus created them. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He did it all. Now, now if you ever stop to just ponder that, like maybe one of the greatest exercises you could do to just get your mind to understand the magnanimity of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, the, 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 the majesty of Jesus, is just walk out some t- outside sometime and just look at anything created, anything natural. Do you know there's scientists say there are 350 billion galaxies? Okay, now, What? 350 that we know of, 350 billion galaxies, almost all of which have been unknown until we had the technology to send the Hubble Space Telescope into space. Now, I don't know dates, but I'm sure that was in the 20th century and not the 19th century, right? I mean, like, so yeah, I consider the span of human history, however long or short I think of it is, and, and only within a tiny window of modernity have we even known that these other galaxies existed. 
And God, for, for, for ages, for centuries, for millennium, we didn't know any of those things were even out there. And yet God still made them. Why? Why would he do that? If you've never read Francis Chan's book, Crazy Love, you should. But this is what Francis Chan says about that. He says, do you think it was to make us say, wow, God is unfathomably big? Or perhaps God wanted us to see these pictures so that our response would be, who do I think I am? God did this. I mean, just, just look at the natural order. Do you know a caterpillar has 248 muscles in its head? It's just its head. That's a lot of muscles for an insect. Do you know the average elm tree has six million leaves? Do you know there's 400 varieties of mangoes? I love mangoes. There's 400 varieties. He didn't have to do that. He could have gone, mango, there it's done. Do you know that your heart Pumps, pumps blood through your veins at a pressure that if that pressure were let go, it would shoot your blood across the room 30 feet. Now, don't try it, but it would. <laughs> Do you know spiders weave three different kinds of silk? I can't weave one. And, and, and when a spider is building its web, it, it, it produces silk at a rate of 60 feet per minute all the while exuding an oil, uh, uh, some kind of substance on its limb so it doesn't stick to its own web. Do you know, of course you do, that all the plant life outside is inhaling what would kill you and exhaling what would let you live? Now, you know that. Have you ever stopped to wonder at it? This is the God we serve. This is Jesus. He is the creator of everything. And by the way, that's just the seen things. <laughs> so there's, there's things that we, we've never seen. Like even science will say there's something called a quark. Never seen a quark. An atom. Never seen an atom. And then the Bible goes on to say there are principalities and powers and rulers and angelic beings. I mean, look, God is looking down and going, you guys think you know so much. You don't know half of it. There is a seen reality and an unseen reality, and Jesus creates it all. Isn't that amazing? This is Jesus. Okay, but he goes, goes on. He's not finished. He says, next thing, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So, so here we, he's saying he wants to show us again in a couple of ways that Jesus is God. He's the radiance of God's glory. So when I see Jesus, the essence of Jesus is the glory of God. Jesus is to God as a sun's rays are to the sun. Now, now think about this. I did not say, the Bible does not say that Jesus is a reflection of God. The moon reflects the sun's light. So when, it, when the sun goes down at night and the moon pops up, we're going to look and we're going to see, oh, we see light from the moon. That is merely a reflection of the sun, right? We all know this. But go outside today and stare at the sun if you can. 
right? You'll, you'll play that game as a kid, and like five seconds, two, you know, whatever. You, you, you stare at the sun, and you're not seeing the sun. You're not seeing the sun. You're seeing the rays of the sun. Those rays are connected to the, to, to the sun, the actual orb, right? This is the same thing with Jesus. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's not just a reflection. He, he, is, he is God. He's, a, he's an extension of God the way that the rays are an extension of the sun. But then he says he's the exact imprint of God. Do you see that? The exact, he's the exact imprint of his nature. It's a fascinating word. I've, I've, got, I've got this ring. I'm not wearing it right now uh, that my parents gave me for graduation from high school, and it's got the Lewis family crest carved into it, okay? And so the idea, it's a signet ring. So the idea is, you know, uh, if I was an ancient king or prince or something, I'd drop wax onto a piece of paper. I'd stamp it down, which I've done just for fun, and, and, and stamped it. And you look at it, and you look at, the, you look at the ring, you look at the wax, and what is it? Exact. That, that's the idea. This word was actually used, the exact imprint, that word was used to talk, to talk about how a coin and a die, you'd take a die, you'd press it down on the coin, and you'd look at it and go, oh, they're exact. So what the writer is telling us over and over again is if I'm looking at Jesus, I'm looking at God. If I want to know who God is, I look at Jesus. So much so that in John 14, look at what Jesus says. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father. Whoever has seen me has seen the father. Whoever hates me hates my father. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You know what God thinks about people? Look at Jesus. You know how God talks? Look at Jesus. In fact, you cannot, hear me, you cannot know God apart from Jesus. Not possible. So much so, look what Jesus says. Now, now just, just, just ponder this. Whoever hates me hates my Father. Can you worship something you hate? Answer, no. So, so a friend of mine, we were talking this week, and he said to me, isn't it true that Christians, Jews, and Muslims all worship the same God? Answer, never. Because they completely reject Jesus. And if you hate Jesus, you're not worshiping God. That's not the same God. I want to know God. I look at Jesus. That's his, that's his whole point. And I take that die, I press it down onto the metal, I get the coin, but notice, I get a coin and I get a die. So on the one hand, Jesus says we're one. On the other hand, we look and we say they're separate. And so this leads us into this mysterious doctrine that we preach. It's called the Trinity. And the doctrine of the Trinity simply says this, there is one God, one God, one God, one God, who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Th one, yet three. And if you try to unravel that, you're going to end up in the fetal position in a corner sucking your thumb because it's not possible. This is the magnitude of God. This is Jesus. Okay, but let's keep going. He says next, he says he's the sustainer of all things. He says, look, he says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is amazing. This word upholds means to sustain or to bear up. And when you think about that, when you think of, oh, Jesus is bearing up the world. 
if I'm in classical Greek mythology, what am I thinking of? I'm thinking of, you know, muscular, bulging Atlas beneath the globe, holding it up on his back, sort of bending under the weight of it. Except that's exactly wrong. Because Jesus isn't bending under the weight of anything. He's not, he's not man, this is heavy. Man, I'm not sure I can handle all that's happening in the world. Because what the, what the writer of Hebrews wants to make sure you understand is he upholds the word by the world, by the word of his power. Be held up, world, and it's held up. Colossians says that in him all things hold together. They hold together. You know, there are mysterious forces in physics that scientists don't understand why these things are even attracted to each other and why they're not just flying apart. I think I know why. Because he holds them together. And when he says done, done. This is Jesus. He upholds it by the word of his power. I mean, this is just absolutely remarkable. I mean, look, if you and I could look in our hands right now, right? If we could take a microscope and look right down into our hands, closer and closer, we'd find that on our hands is a speck of dust, several specks, in fact. Now, does that weigh you down? Is that hard for you to carry the speck of dust around? Right? No, right? In fact, you don't even think about it. Here's the difference between the speck of dust that we hold in our hand and the speck of dust that God holds in his hands. He cares. He's like, he's like Horton, Dr. Zeus, right? Person's a person, no matter how small, this little speck of dust, you know, I'm watching this thing and I'm caring for it. And that's what we are. So, so they sent the Voyager spacecraft, I think that's the, that was the name of it, up and it was doing all this exploration. And as it was about to fly off into oblivion to the outer stretches of the universe, they sent the command for Voyager to turn around. And turn around and just take a picture of what you see toward Earth. Voyager took a picture. I wish I had it to show it to you, but I'm not sure you even see it on the screen. You can look it up on the internet. Took a picture and boom. And you look at this thing and it looks like the film is covered with dust. <laughs> Except there's beams of light coming down and one little tiny sliver of light intersects this tiny blue speck in that photo. And that's us. Everything that ever happened in the world happened right there. Everything that ever will happen in our world will happen right there. Every ruler is right there. See, I think, I think David got a glimpse of this. Whether he knew that someday there'd be this photo that would show this tiny little blue speck in the universe, at the very least, what David understood is how big God was and how small we are. And so he says in Psalm chapter 8, the writer of Hebrews is going to come back to over and over, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? I mean, we're a speck of dust. And you could just and blow us away. But you take us in your hands and you care for us.
Jesus is the sustainer. Now, now he says, I want to tell you what Christ has done. So now, now watch this. Ready? First thing he's going to tell us is that he's the, he's the purifier. Jesus made purification for sin. So, so let's keep reading. He says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, just stop for a second. Think of what the writer of Hebrews just did to us. Like, I, I, all I've done so far is we've taken one phrase at a time and sort of stacked them. We've, we've, we've talked about each one and said, okay, here's what this one means, and here's what this one means, and here's what this one means. Now, now just, just think about what he's saying here. He made purification for sins. Who did? Who, who did this thing? Go back up to, to the top of, of, of verse 2. The Son of God, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He, He, this one made purification for sins. That's mind blowing. There's not a sewer cleaner in the universe that is stooped that low. Cleaning a toilet that junior hires have used is more honorable work than cleansing from sin. And this is the one who does it. The Son of God, the sustainer, the heir, all these things. This is the God who does this for us. And it had to be Him, by the way, because we couldn't do it for ourselves. It wasn't possible for us to make purification for our sins. And how does he do, do it? How, how does he make purification? He, he, he comes himself. He sheds his own blood. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You understand, we have a problem called sin. And we can't get rid of it ourselves. Listen, this is incredibly important. You are not a sinner because you sin. Do you understand that? You didn't become a sinner the first time you looked at mommy and daddy and said, no. That's not the day you became a sinner. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. There is something in your DNA. There is something in your nature, in your essence. You, you are at your core a sinner, and you cannot eradicate that. You understand this? So Jesus steps in and says, I'll do it. I'm the doctor. I'll give you the antibiotic. I'll give, and it'll be me, and I will deliver it from you, and I will save you, and I will purify you. Like, like, you understand that word? I'll, I'll literally make you from, from soiled and stained and muddied and disgusting, and I will take you, and you will be pure, and you will be clean. There is nothing in your background that Jesus cannot purify. This is amazing. And the Bible talks about the, what he does with our sin, his purification. He talks about that process in almost um, unfathomable ways. It says that God takes your sin when you've been purified through the blood of Jesus Christ. It says he takes your sin, he buries them in a sea of forgetfulness. 
Can God forget? He takes him to the Bible says, and puts him behind his back. He removes him as far as the east is from the west. He literally takes them, the idea is, and calls them nothing. If God can call something out of nothingness, he can take something and create nothingness. And he says he'll do that for your sin. I don't have to walk around with the weight and the guilt and bear this anymore. I can look high and low. Where are the sins that Jesus has purified? Where are they? I want to go find them. I want to look for them. I want to, I want to find where they are. Are they over some mountain? Are they in deep in some sea? Where are they? And the answer is you'll never find them, Chris, because they're gone. They're just gone. Do you get this? This is what Christ has done for you if you're a child of God. You can be clean and washed and pure because of Jesus Christ. And then, then look what he says. He says, the last thing is that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus sat down in the seat of power. Now, that's really, really crucial because priests don't sit down. Do you understand this? Like, like, go study it sometime. Just go back to Leviticus, go back to Deuteronomy, and go look at what the priests did. But more importantly, I know you find this boring because you're reading and you're like, what in the world? What relevance does any of this have to do to me? Go read about all of the furniture in the temple where the sacrifices were offered. And you'll find a bowl, and you'll find a place to wash their hands, and you'll find a place for them to slaughter and cook the, the sacrifices. You'll find, a, you'll find all these things. You know what you will not find in the temple? A chair, a throne. Because their work was never done. They had to keep offering sacrifices over and over and over and over and over again. Back uh, after Michelle and I were f- married for a couple of years, I don't know, um, we got invited to go to a Jewish home and, and participate in a Passover service with them. Now, what they're celebrating is the redemption of the nation of Israel from the nation of Egypt in the Exodus. And I was very eager to go do this. I wanted to see what's that look like. I want to hear, because I'm a New Testament Christian, and I want to hear all the allusions to, to Jesus in this. But it was a Jewish home, and I knew they weren't going to talk about Jesus. So I went, I took my place, and I sat down next to this gentleman. I don't even know his name to this day. And we didn't say, hi, hey, how are you? We didn't say, hey, what's your name? My name's Chris. First words out of his mouth. Very first words. He looked at me and he said, why do you think the sacrifices should ever end? And guess what I said? Uh... I'm ashamed to tell you, I, I, didn't, I didn't know until I read the book of Hebrews. In fact, until I read the Old, Old Testament. And David says that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Do you know this? Do you know that not one Old Testament sacrifice took care of one sin? 
Not one. Why would they do it then? Because all of it was looking forward to someday there would be a once-for-all sacrifice in a Messiah that would come. And that Messiah is Jesus, right? And if I could go back, I would say to that man, the blood of bulls and goats never took away one sin. You were always looking forward to the day when the sacrifices would be over, when finally the Messiah would offer himself up as a sheep led to the slaughter. He would be slaughtered for our sin, and then it could stop. Because you don't have to keep paying for your sin. You don't have to keep going back and say, how can I sacrifice for it again? Because Jesus did it once. And the writer of Hebrews says, and then he sat down. What's he doing? He hung on the cross and he says, it's finished. And he sat down. I'm done. I have done everything that needs to be done everything to accomplish redemption. Nothing else needs to be done. He sat down to rest, but you know what? He also sat down to rule. I love this. The seat at the right hand of God is the seat of ultimate power. You're going to read. We're going to read it over and over. He's going to reference to Psalm 2. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. I'm going to, you're going to have ultimate authority over all of earth. This is all yours. The universe is yours. I'm giving it to you as a gift. You now rule. Do you understand that God rules right now? Jesus is ruling and reigning, sitting at God's right hand, ruling and reigning over the entire universe. He is reigning above Glendora. He is reigning above the San Gabriel Valley. He is reigning above California. He is reigning above North America. He is reigning above all the continents of the earth. He is reigning over the universe. Not Obama, not Putin, not Kim Jong-un, not any of these tribal leaders. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is ruling. Ruling, reigning. And I've got it all under control. In fact, the Bible says, Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is like a river. Listen to this. The king's heart is like a water course, it says, and God turns it wherever he wants it to go. So all the weird things that we see rulers in our, our world doing, why, if God is doing that, God's saying, hey, hold on. You don't know the end. This is all working according to my sovereign plan. He's ruling. He's ruling. But let me show you one other thing, because this is mind-blowing. The right-hand seat of God is not just a place of rest or a place of rule. It's a place of intercession. Now, look at this. Look what Paul says in, uh, in Romans chapter 8. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed, Paul wants to make sure, he adds this word of emphasis, indeed, I mean, this is huge, is, is, is. What's the, what's the tense of that verb? Present. Is interceding for us, for children of God, for his people. Now, that ought to just throw you back on your heels. God, Jesus right now is interceding for you, for me. My name is being mentioned before the throne of God by Jesus. 
That's amazing. Like some people come up to me, and I, let me just say this. I love praying with you and for you. I honestly do. But I get the feeling sometimes that people will walk up to me because they go, okay, he's a pastor. He's the lead pastor of that church. And so I'll go, and they'll say something like, hey, Pastor Chris, can you say a blessing over me as, as though there's something more efficacious about my prayer? And I want to just turn to this and say, Christ Jesus is interceding for you. You don't need Mary. You don't need St. Thomas. In fact, why? Why? <laughs> you have Jesus interceding for you right now. See, let me, let me, let me just end with this. Like, you can listen to all this. That's why I say, I, I, I think we have to be careful how we read Scripture. But I just want to, like, what does all this mean for you? Because the fact of the matter is you could sit here and, and, and somehow you could be unmoved and unthinking, I, I don't even know how this applies. I'm not even sure I care. So what about Jesus? Let me tell you what it means. It means that if you really believe it, you can't be ho-hum about this. You cannot glibly say out loud, as many politicians do, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and He died for my sins. You can say it, but if you believe that, it will change you. It means you can't be glib. I think it means that now you have an anchor for your soul. Some of you are looking and saying, like these readers from Hebrews, your world is turned upside down. Your kids are a mess. Your job is in turmoil. Your bills can't be paid. You're looking at your life and saying, I don't know what to do, and, and, and my world is just a, is, is chaos right now. And if this Jesus is who, if this is who he really is, there's an anchor for your soul. There's an anchor for you. I think it means that we have hope, right? You have an inheritance. You have a hope for your future. I, I think it means that, that Christ can, and let's say this, Christ must be trusted, right? Like, like he's the king. He, he's the one who, who has done everything. He's the sovereign, and, and we worship him, and we are accountable to him, and we can trust him. He'll do everything he promised he would do. I think it means that belief in God isn't enough. I mean, everything the writer of Hebrews does is going to point us, and he's going to show us the Old Testament and say, this isn't just about God, it's about Jesus. You have to believe in Jesus. I think he's telling us that Christ is all we need. I think he's telling us that Christ will hold your life together. Like some of you need this. Some of you need that. You, you need to know that you are in the hand of a strong, mighty, sovereign, unshakable God. And that's Jesus. And I think it means he will cleanse you. He's made purification for sins. Will you let him cleanse you? Will you walk in that, Christian? How many of us walk around with past sins over our shoulder? How many of us walk around and we hear this voice inside, yeah, but you know what, remember you did this, you did that, you did that, you did that, and you know what you ought to say when those voices hit you? You ought to say, you're right, I've, I did all those things. I'm as bad as those voices are telling me, but Jesus paid it all.
and I am clean. And you cannot tell me that's what I am right now. This is Jesus. Do you know him? Do you know this Jesus? Not some good moral teacher. Not just some guy who walked the earth. The son of God. The heir of all things. The one who created everything. The one who is the exact representation of God. The imprint of his nature. The one who holds all things by the word of his power. The one who made purification. The one who's sitting down at the right hand of God. Do you know Jesus? Let's pray.